Joining us today, we'll be interviewing Philip Ball, a science writer from the UK who was formerly the editor at Nature. He has contributed to publications such as The New Scientist, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Financial Times, and The New Statesman. He's the author of many books on science and its interactions with the wider culture. And his latest book is called Invisible, The Dangerous Allure of the Unseen. And, and many of his works include such a variety of very different areas, including the nature of water, pattern formation in the natural world, color in art, the science of social and political philosophy, as well as the cognition of music. So we're going to jump straight into the interview now. We get a very, very interesting insight into his next book as well. This is an exclusive. His next book is an on China, and it's looking at China in a very different way using one substance, and we're about to find out what that is. What really uh, brought your curiosity to the whole invisible story? Well, for once, for once, this was a book that had quite a clear genesis, and that was that I was invited to give a talk to a group who were interested in the crossover of science and art, which is an area I'm interested in. And there was a talk about materiality and what's happening to materials, really. And I, I talked about how it seems to me that in the current age, in contrast to the way the future was portrayed in the 1950s, where we'd be surrounded by this space age technology of gleaming steel That's and, right. and beautiful and circular stone. buildings, and all of, yes, all of this. And it was it was a very um, sort of physical environment. It was you know the materials were very much there. They were uh, they were very present. Um, whereas in fact, what we're getting is a dematerialization of things that um, we have the LiPods that are hermetically sealed. You don't know what's inside them. Yeah. Even if you could open them, you can't really see anything of right. the machinery, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and we're pervaded by information, you know, all around us. Yeah. Uh, we have all the world's information, yeah. um, you know, through Wi-Fi. And uh, so it seemed to me that the materials are really becoming more and more invisible. And right. so I talked about that. And uh, afterwards, an artist came up to me and said, has this theme of dematerialization been talked about or written about? And I said, not to my knowledge, yeah. um, and went away. And I guess that question stayed with me. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, that is such a huge and fantastic question what invisibility means and how did we get here in terms of that not just in terms of materials mm -hmm. but in terms of thinking about uh, what uh, what what is visible and what isn't in our environment and you know today I was aware that today scientists are claiming to be making things that they're calling invisibility cloaks or invisibility shields and um, these are ways of manipulating light in quite uh, new ways that have never really been done before that seem in some ways to break the laws of optics. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, this has become a theme um, in, in technology just yeah. at the moment. But it's also an area of myth and magic. This is really where invisibility has featured in the past. And I'm always interested in 
how science interacts with and collides with cult- these broader cultural ideas. Um, so it just seemed that this was a really fertile area to delve into. And the moment I started thinking about it, I think everyone has some point of reference to invisibility, and everyone has different points of reference. Yeah. Um, but you know, everyone thinks something about it. And so it seemed like just an ideal area to explore where you could talk about science, you could talk about art and literature and myth and culture broadly. And that's really what I try to look for in the books that I write. Right. And so people have reacted, uh, they've really reacted to the book in many ways. And I think it's because you have uh, tapped into that very question that people have been asking themselves about that, where science does actually mirror that kind of cultural question or that cultural myth. Do you, have you been surprised so far by the way, how enthusiastically people have, have come to the book and how quickly they, they got the concept and what you were trying to share there? Well, it's always interesting uh, if I write about a subject like this to find that different, I mean, it's inevitable, I suppose, that different people will pick up on different things. Yeah. Um, I often find if you're if you're seen as a science writer, yeah. then you're often reviewed as a science writer, yeah. and that means that the reviewers are people who are used to reading about science and will focus it zero in on the science that's in the book. Um, but it's always I find it's always much um, I won't say much more satisfying. It's just different. It's interesting when you get a completely different perspective on what you've done. Um, so, you know, it's been people who are more used to reviewing literary books, for right. example, yeah. who will see different things in this, or people who know about the supernatural. This is an aspect of what I've written about, right. one that my reviewers had written a history of ghosts. Right. Um, and uh, I, I think that that's kind of what I'd hope for with yeah. this topic, that okay. actually there are many ways in and different readers will find different ways in which their interest in invisibility comes out. I must admit, I I was uh, reading on your blog, you know, that whole question of everybody must imagine at some stage they wanted to be invisible. And and I thought about about that for me and it was a very embarrassing moment. And I was at a fabulous, uh, fabulous party and there was these huge artworks on these beautiful big white walls and I won't name the city (laughs) or how old I was and I had this huge... We had these big brandy glasses of red uh, wine and, okay. and somebody talked to me and I <laughs> yeah. turned around and this, this red wine sprayed sort of two metres out of my glass across three paintings and across this white wall. And I yeah. thought, this is, this is my time when I want to, to be invisible. Yeah. And um, I mean, fortunately, it ended very well and managed to, you know, all of these people that saw it sort of reversed into the painting started <laughs> to hide the fact there was wine all over them. <laughs> and then and then somebody switched down the lights and turned up the music and, and, and rescued me. So so I think everybody can relate to that wanting to be invisible, I guess, on some level. Well, that's, you, you see, it's very interesting that it is this double-edged thing, but, you know, sometimes we want to be invisible to escape, to, um, you know, to evade something, whereas at other times it's a superpower that we want to have to, to, to actually do things yeah. consciously that we know we wouldn't normally get away with. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what, what I wanted to, so one of the things I wanted to suggest in this book is that if you look at the stories we tell about it, it rarely ends well. You know, as a as a superpower, I'm not sure that I've 
come away convinced that it's one that it would be wise to have. I mean, you know, an obvious point of reference there is is the Lord of the Rings, where yeah, you know okay. the invisible the the ring that turns you invisible is also going to steal your soul ultimately, yeah. and. I think that that's a that's a very valid, very deeply rooted idea about invisibility that goes right back to Plato, who talked about the first ring of invisibility, actually. And uh, his point was that if we had such a thing, which of us would be sufficiently uh, would have sufficient moral integrity? That's right. To to you know to resist doing things that we shouldn't. That's right. I remember reading that and thinking that was that was very uh, a very tempting thought, really. In a way. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I've so you know people often now when I talk about this this stuff, they come up afterwards and say, you know, what would you do if you were invisible? And I say I'd really try to resist <laughs> the temptation to even go there yeah. because um, you know I should know better, having looked into this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know. And so you were talking about that in Auckland as well. You've just come from Auckland in New Zealand and you were presenting there at the, was it the Writers Festival? The Auckland Writers Festival. That's right, yeah. That looked looked fantastic from the programme. Yeah, it was a lovely event. I mean, um, you know, I talk, I suppose, fairly regularly at at writers and literary festivals, um, but I really enjoyed this one. Um, partly because it did have a fantastic program. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they, there were people like uh, Haruki Murakami and uh, David Mitchell, who was a lovely man who I got to, to know a little bit. Um, and uh, so the program itself was, was very nice, but I think the, uh, what I really enjoyed was the enthusiasm of right. the audiences. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I, I had a sense that they uh, really felt appreciative, I suppose, that the writers would come across the world yeah. um, to, to speak to them, and that was lovely. Yeah, brilliant. And you're going back as well. You're going back, you've got another couple of talks there, is that right? Or you're doing some travelling? Yeah, well, I, I, I have, um, uh, I'm also speaking in Wellington Christchurch. Oh, fantastic. Um, that's been supported by the Royal Society of New Zealand. Right. Um, and then after that, I'm uh, travelling to China for two weeks on my way home. Right, okay, yeah. So I guess that uh, the China trip leads into your, uh, this is your next book, but in actual fact you're at the, you're at the final stages of completing that project, is it's, that right? It, well, it's well along the way. It needs yeah. a lot of tidying up, but it's, um, most of the words are kind of on paper. And this is, so this is a book about China, and um, it, Every time I say that, I think I think to myself, "What a crazy thing to do!" <laughs> yeah. China is so huge, yeah. um, but in a way, that's the point. That right. what I'm trying to do with this book is to look to look at China through the window of water, right. um, to look at the roles that water has played in Chinese history, culture, tradition, right. art, politics, because it turns out that while every culture has some sort of relationship with water, they have to. I think that. In China, it has one that is without parallel elsewhere, and there are geographical reasons for that, and sort of you know contingent historical reasons for that. But in one way or another, water has such a deep resonance um, in ways that mean the philosophy is tied up with the engineering, with the hydraulic engineering. Right. That these two things, you know, that we think of as completely separate spheres of uh, activity, right. come together. 
and that uh, that art is able to comment on politics yeah. through the medium of water. There are so many reference points within China um, right. to do with water that you can tell an awful lot about the country's history and situation through this window. Right, I'm fascinated. And so uh, I, I guess thinking about it, I, I can see how we would separate uh, hydraulics and engineering and all of these other things over here and then and then our relationship with water from a Western perspective is quite a different thing and these two obviously wouldn't meet. In terms of that uh, early Chinese relationship with water and, and mechanisms and the motion of uh, that sort of uh, the hydraulic stuff. Is there a lot of early Chinese stuff to do with using water to power power things in, in that sense? Is there a very early kind of use of water in an engineering sense that well, yeah, Cullen, there, 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 there is, um, uh, I mean, it's well known that uh, Chinese technology for, you know, hundreds of years was, was well in advance of the West in yeah. all sorts of respects and, you know, in this respect more than any other. But I think the thing that strikes me most is that um, what, you know, we, we hear about these massive hydraulic engineering projects that China has undertaken, like the Three Gorges Dam, yeah, sure. and the uh, now this massive project to bring water from the south up to the north, where right. there's a shortage of it, um, by digging these, you know, thousand kilometers or more channels, three of them, across the country. But this is something, this is a tradition that goes back... Um, Millennia, right. but they were doing this um, in the Qin Dynasty, the first unified dynasty of of all of China around sort of two hundred BC. Okay, um, and it even it even goes back further than that. That that like all like many cultures, China has a flood myth. Yeah. But unlike any other culture that I know of, the flood is isn't just something that comes and subsides. They actually get rid of it. It's a hydraulic engineer, really, an ancient right. mythical hydraulic engineer who comes and solves the problem and says, "We've got to cut down this mountain and dig this channel." Right. Um, so this idea that you will arrange and manipulate and rearrange nature to suit the state right. goes right back into Chinese myth. Right. So it's so deeply rooted that it's really no surprise that the present government's approach to the water problems is to engage in these massive projects that you know most places elsewhere in the world wouldn't even dare to contemplate. That's right and so I guess in actual fact they're just carrying on a tradition aren't they? Well they are doing that yes yeah. uh, they are and and for that reason there's all sorts of resonances about this this sort of work that you wouldn't find in other cultures right. that um, the, the the fact that the country is uh, that the rivers run from 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 west to east, right. um, sure. and that there are you know these two massive rivers in particular, the Yellow and the Yangtze, that have flooded on a biblical scale right. throughout yeah. history, yeah. Um, has had such a strong influence on the the, the way the country has developed uh, that. 
it was often seen as a sign of heaven's displeasure if there was a massive flood of one of these or both of these rivers. Mm -hmm. So an emperor who couldn't control the waters right. was in trouble. And, you know, they, they could rarely do that because yeah. it, the, 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 the problem was of such a massive proportion. They didn't have the engineering ability right. to control something like the Yellow River, you know, hundreds of years ago. Mm. Um, and, and so what the rivers were doing could determine the fate of the nation in all sorts of ways. Right, yeah. So we could have had that scenario where the emperor is standing out looking at the rain that has been falling for the past three weeks and thinking, this is it. I can be washed away. The dynasty can be washed away with the river and, and, and there's nothing I can do to I'm hold sure back the heavens. I'm sure they did think that. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and certainly the water officials, the hydraulic officials, who have been, again, appointed for you know th thousands of years, right. uh, there has been a kind of a bureaucracy to try to manage the rivers for this reason. And they mm. were terrified that yeah. what would happen to them if they were seen to fail um, in, in, in their jobs, in their duty. Right. Um, and this is a... a, a context that the, um, the, the the party you know the Chinese Communist Party now inherits they right. know that they are will will be judged according to how well they manage the waters right. um, through this lens of history of right. all you know this long tradition of, of doing that to the the state leaders right and so uh, what inspired you I guess you didn't leap from the invisible uh, book into the great waters of China. But what inspired you to to look at this book, to get involved in this project? I, I wanted to... I've been interested in China for a long time and I have various connections there. And mm. so I was kind of interested to try to find a way of writing about it. Um, and water is a subject that I've written about quite a lot in a quite different context um, in the past. Um, I, in particular, am very interested in the, the molecular science of water. So it's a very, you know, this doesn't bear on what's going on in China, but it yeah. means I have, for one thing, some connections with water laboratories in China that just gave me enough confidence to think perhaps I could give this massive subject a go, a shot. Right. Um, so it, it just occurred to me that this was a great way to, to write about China. Um, and I suppose that's something that I've done before to try to find a way of bringing some sort of scientific knowledge or insight to a subject that I'm interested in anyway. I did this with the book I wrote about music, right, about yeah. how, uh, how, what the brain is up to when we listen to music, how we make sense of it, yeah. because I've you know, had a long interest in music and would love to write about it, and this was a way to do it. Right, so that, that brings me to another interesting point, and that is uh, we, we interviewed a singing scientist last week, um, uh, Chris Krishna Pillay, who, um, who, who uses song to get some of his message across. And so we had a brief conversation about scientists using the arts to communicate. And, and a part of it was based around um, an event around climate change and, and how in particular parts of the world at the moment that science is not particular, po particularly popular for various reasons. And so my question to him was that in actual fact, as we, as we move through these changing political landscapes where you know what was hot in science with this government 
last year may not be so hot or so well funded next year. Does that now present a real challenge to scientists to in actual fact communicate quite differently about the work they're doing if, if they are not going to be always supported by some of these institutions in the past that might have supported their work? Do you think that there is a kind of a real importance now for scientists to actually reach out and communicate on different levels? Oh, I think, I think a lot of scientists recognise the importance of doing that for right. various reasons. Yeah. I mean, certainly okay. to get political support if yeah. they can, but also to get public support. Yeah. Um, that uh, I think certainly in, in Europe, um, scientists were, a lot of scientists were quite alarmed by the public response to genetic modification right. of, of um, plants and animals sure. um, and were taken by surprise by right. it and I think realised that they hadn't sufficiently attended to what public opinion might be right. and how important that might be for you know enabling this research to, to, to carry on and yeah. I think it's really in the wake of that in particular right. but also of climate change yeah. that um, that they've become sensitized to the need to communicate to people you know what it is they do and why yeah. I think that's the thing that's changed there have always been people who have wanted to tell the broader public about science yeah and that's a fantastic thing. But I think that often that message has been, listen to us and we will tell you about it and then you will agree with us because you will understand it. Yeah. Whereas now I think they realise that actually you've got to have a conversation with other people, with the rest of society really, in order to get their mandate to, you know, to do the things that you might think are important but it might not be obvious to everyone else why that's so. Yeah, that's right. And I guess that um, we're probably going to see some uh, some even more rapid changes in that way of communicating, aren't we, in a sense? We're going to see... Do you think that in actual fact it is changing the way scientists are even beginning to uh, not only look at how they package and sell and communicate their work, but also do you think that there is... I suppose climate change might be a good example where in actual fact public opinion and public influence is going to start... Uh, moulding uh, much more the shape of where science can go. There's some huge interrelationship that's beginning. I, th I think that, uh, that that could well happen. I mean, certainly, you know, in the United States, you can see it become such a political football, right, the, the yeah. issue of climate change, and also of um, of embryo research. Right, as, you know, yeah, it's the sure. other big area that, yeah. um, in some ways. Uh, politicians, at least, feel it's sort of too hot to handle. They, yeah, you know, they sure. don't want to, to, to go near near it, and yeah. it means that there could can it can lead to a stasis in that area of research because the right. scientists just don't know what's going to be possible and what what, what isn't what you know what they're going to be allowed to do and what yeah, they're not. Sure. Um, so uh, yeah, I you know I think scientists are going to be aware of this, and it, it's leading to some interesting ideas about public engagement that you now find some scientists going into the theatre and right. giving what's almost a kind of a lecture but a theatric, theatricalised lecture if, if that's a, a, a real word yeah. where it's um, you know they're not sort of talking as a scientist it's a presentation that's been put together with a theatre director um, that is partly pedagogical it's partly to tell people what's going on yeah. but it's also that you're going to sort of see something that will that will make you think, that will keep you engaged, 
that you know is different from the the standard sort of public lecture about science um, and I think it I think again that's a great thing that scientists are realizing that there are more ways to communicate than just to you know write a, an article in language that people might be able to understand they can use theater in particular but um, the other arts as well so uh, you know I, I think that's a, that's a good thing I, I, I also think that there's a tension there when science meets the arts yeah. not just because they have different ways of looking at things or in fact not really about that at all but because for some of the scientists it's about here's a good way of getting our message across of telling people about science whereas for artists they want to make good art and if, if that's not good then you know you don't really care about the, the pedagogy of it yeah absolutely we we had an interesting conversation with uh, Rachel who is also part of the Carlton Connect Network and uh, She's doing, working on a project where they're bringing artists and their art into the laboratory, and these are working, living laboratories, and so there is this interaction between the artists and the scientists. And, and I think you probably, more than many people, would understand how challenging that can be. So, for example, from an artist's point of view, if you took an artist and say, look, you know, this is your residency, I mean, obviously they volunteered they're excited to be a part of the project but you're going to be doing your art in the lab and you're going to be interacting and reacting with the scientists and so you can see that for, for a lot of artists that would be a real challenge because there's a whole lot of uh, clinical kind of things that that might be very challenging for them in terms of a space to work in and then one of the other things that she said was interesting that's happening now is that some of the scientists were beginning to react emotionally to the work as the work was reflecting their work yeah yeah and so yeah. that's a fascinating because I guess we don't think of scientists of be as being highly emotional <laughs> we don't imagine these highly emotional scientists running around the lab reacting to these artworks but in actual fact that's quite a different scenario isn't it really yeah I mean it is a, a, a sad thing that we've sort of developed really this stereotype of scientists as being clinically detached from you know what they're they're working on whereas anyone who encounters them knows they're often extremely emotional <laughs> and you know about and, and have deep feelings about what it is that they're doing um, but you know I think it's what's also interesting and possibly uh, a, a, another source of tension is that if you get artists involved, that, that they're not necessarily going to see things the same way as you do as a, you know, as a scientist. And you have a fantastic example of that in, in Australia with the, uh, the, the group Symbiotica, right. um, who I think, and apologies to them if I'm wrong, I think they're based at the University of Western Australia. Okay. And they're working, they're, they're essentially an art, a group of artists working on this area of synthetic biology, right. of redesigning living organisms. Right. And what's striking about them is that they get into the lab, learn the techniques that the scientists are using themselves, right. and actually do stuff with it. But they're doing stuff with it as a, a critique in right. the proper sense, not to say this is terrible what all these scientists are doing, <laughs> yeah. but to say let's really think about 
what the implications are and there you know there probably are some things that we should be concerned about yeah. and it's you know if they're actually using the science itself yeah. literally the the laboratory techniques yeah. to to explore those areas yeah. that's really interesting yeah and i guess also really as we move further into that's a very good example as we move further into uh, the possibilities of these biological synthetic organisms and and I suppose um, uh, you know this kind of I guess that 1950s sort of horror movie of where science could be going uh, these critiques may become much more important it much be it, it could be much more important to actually have uh, these critiques within the work as we move ahead. Well, I, I think that, just this lab yeah, stuff. I, I definitely think so, but I also think that scientists ought to embrace them because yeah. certainly what I've seen from Symbiotica is a much more because they're informed. Yeah, um, it's a much more sophisticated critique yeah. than you'll get from that sort of 1950s B-movie image yeah. of scientists creating life and it going horribly wrong and, you know, <laughs> following the usual sort of Frankenstein yeah. or Faustian trajectory. Yeah. They realise that it's not actually about that. Yeah. You know, that the issues, the moral and the, 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 the issues about values and so on that yeah. will come up yeah. um, are, are more subtle yeah. than that. Yeah. And they're able to explore those more subtly. So actually, I think it's a good thing if yeah. you have artists like that you know really engaging with the science yeah. um, and perhaps sort of heading off or defusing the more simplistic sort of responses that you sometimes you know see arising in, yeah. in public yeah absolutely I wanted to just go back briefly if we can um, I guess to a part of the water story in terms of I must admit, I, I did spend a great deal of time looking at your work over over the last week, and um, the one area that I didn't get to was was this other stuff that you've done with water, if you like. And, and I think one of the things that I was reading was almost the brief part that I read. It was to do with almost the kind of, is it the flexibility of water or the ability for water to bend almost there's some quality to it that we don't quite yeah. understand the depth of it's it's the most strange liquid right. we know of and it always sounds like an odd thing to say because for you know pretty much everyone it's the only liquid they right. kind of think of or yeah. certainly the most familiar water and things dissolved in water yeah, sure. um, but i i many years ago did my phd on the the theory of liquids right and we were kind of warned not to go too near water, uh -huh. um, which sounds bizarre for someone interested in a topic like that, but it was because water doesn't behave like other liquids. Right. It's, on, it's anomalous in all sorts of ways. So it was a kind of a no-go area because it's, it's, it's not because it's been sewn up and somebody's done the whole theory of it and we know exactly what it's all about. It's an actual fact that it's completely underpredictable and we still don't understand much about it. it it's, it's too complicated, yeah. Right. I mean, we do understand an awful lot about it, right. um, but it, it, we, we, we know enough to know that actually it's not going to... It's, it's an unrepresentative liquid, in a sense. It's, right. it's difficult. Okay. Um, and it's difficult for the reason you what what uh, you, you you were saying, Cullen, is really that um, uh, water has this the the, the molecules of water the H two O molecules have a tendency to stick together right. um, in particular shapes, okay. and this is something that's constantly making and breaking. There's this sort of network going of of, of molecules going throughout 
you know, a, a, a glass of water mm. um, that is constantly making and breaking, but it has a kind of a shape to it instantaneously as a shape. And when you put something in water, and in particular, if you put, say, a protein molecule, these yeah. are the molecules that uh, are responsible for doing all the, the sort of heavy lifting of life, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, if you put them in water, water has to adapt itself to it. It's not just a question of getting out of the way. The water, because it's it's sort of bonded together with these weak bonds, it sort of almost forms a web around the protein right. that is responding to what the protein is doing, how it's moving, and it often turns out in biology to, to end up being able to help the protein do its job. It's almost as though the water... Is, is becomes almost near the water close to the protein almost becomes part of it. Yeah, so it actually interacts, doesn't it? it? Actually forms some sort of bond or some sort of relationship. There's some sort of interaction, not just a reaction. Is that yeah, what you're saying, in a way? I, I think relationship is actually a really good word to use right. because you know it, the the way it's often been thought about, and in some ways, I think the way biologists still kind of think about it quite often is that you know, the water just has to make way for the stuff that's in there <laughs> yeah, and it, you know it just sort of goes its own way whereas actually it really is a relationship that there's a really really a two-way interaction they adapt to each other and life being as clever as it is because mm. it is a through Darwinian evolution it's able to make use of whatever it is uh, there is that's available it makes use of these weird properties of water um, in order to do its job better. And this means that water is actually an active component of life. It's not just the stuff that life is dissolved in. It actually takes part in that process. Right. And so I guess, uh, obviously, having a background in, in, in that, I guess, understanding those properties or those relationships in terms of your earlier work, are we are we going to be reading some of that in your in your China book about water, or is that sort of an undercurrent running underneath the, um, the grander scale above? There's not going to be any of that right, in the okay, water book right, actually, okay, because yeah, sure. I'm you know in this book I'm simply thinking of water in the as 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 we sort of know it know properly, it. Yeah, you know, okay. water as rivers and yeah. streams okay. and rain, right. and ultimately the things that it does in the geological environment really depend on the, these same properties. Right, but right. we're so used to you know, that being that, the case yeah. that it doesn't really come into it. We don't need to know about the science sure. of water. Yeah. I've talked about that elsewhere, yeah, and that's something okay. I'll continue to talk about, but right. it's not a part of this story. All right, thanks, Philip. So um, I guess as we move to some extent ahead in time into these more ghostly realms of the internet of things of things reacting to us in a, a kind of invisible way where we walk into our house and the lights come on and we open the fridge and and the doorbell rings and the milkman has arrived and the milk's been delivered by drone and we didn't have to think about that do you see that um our entire uh, relationship with technology is going to change that quickly in a few years time do you feel we're heading towards this very different relationship quite quickly with the internet of things um yeah i i guess i do actually um you know i i think that it's 
an issue that we, we, we we're starting to take for granted that we're going to have these possibilities and you know I think um, in many ways they'll be very useful possibilities but I think that what we don't always think about enough is uh, what the almost the sort of psychological consequences of that will be of having these intelligent environments that kind of know what we want it's already unnerving when we get these recommender systems giving us stuff that we do want actually they're getting better and better you know yeah, they yeah. somehow they they figure out you know what what it is that we like yeah. very quickly very easily um and this is just the beginning of yeah. of, of, of what's going to be happening and uh it really strikes me as be as having some similarity to the way people thought the world worked 500 600 years ago in the middle ages um that the 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 idea that there were supernatural agents out there somehow who knew what you wanted who perhaps you had to defend yourself against right. you know as we have to now defend ourselves from cyber attack or whatever yeah. that this it it's almost as though we're creating an environment that I think in, in, in some ways would be more familiar to them, less surprising to them than it would have been to the you know, Enlightenment philosophers of two or three hundred years ago. And it's worth thinking about that, it, that we're almost sort of enchanting our environment. And certainly we see already that it's, it means we're creating a new space for ghosts to right. inhabit yeah um, you know with uh, I mean uh, it's very interesting that I haven't seen it yet but this new movie Unfriended is exactly oh, oh, yes, I, I, saw, I saw that I saw, oh, okay. I saw the I haven't seen the movie right. but I saw the shorts and I thought I was like wow yeah that's really um, looked pretty pretty challenging I yeah. thought from what I could see yeah, in the shorts yeah. you know it's, it's, it's just very interesting that now you can make a horror movie sort of about Facebook yeah right and do you think that in an actual fact really when you look at it on a whole lot of levels that in fact science and technology in a way has for quite a long time been about enchanting ourselves in a sense that in actual fact the whole thing is an enchantment in a way because we're taking those beliefs those ideas those feelings those concepts and sort of reproducing them out there well one of the things that i wanted to really explore in in my book invisible was how from the certainly from around the mid middle of the 19th century physics in particular but i think science more broadly has become very much about invisible things, yeah. um, whether that's electromagnetic fields and the ether, as physicists believed for a long time, was the, right. the substance that uh, transmitted light waves, um, or whether it's things that are just invisibly small, viruses and atoms. Um, in one way or another, the emphasis of science shifted from stuff, from tangible stuff, to invisible, intangible right. stuff. Um, and it, it, it seemed to me to be no coincidence that that happened at a time when there was this huge interest in spiritualism and yeah. for you know a lot, a lot of the scientists of that age those things weren't in conflict at all right um, that yeah. there were leading physicists who felt 
spirit there was something in spiritualism that mediums were contacting something whether it was the dead or not and that the task for science was not to show that this was actually a fraudulent and a load of rubbish but to use the techniques of science to fig to distinguish what was real from what was fraud right. and, you know charlatanry so i know uh philip that you've been talking uh, a lot about color and you've written a lot about color as well and and i know that you presented recently you presented your color uh, presentation in edinburgh is that right yes well uh, i i wrote a book about uh, color in art several years ago, in fact, many years ago, now that I think about yeah. it, and it's another, it's a perennial subject that right. keeps coming up, yeah. because, of course, it's always there. It's yeah. always, you know, so much of art has been about this. It was really about the, the book was about how the invention of new pigments for painters, right. how, as new colours were invented, how this changed the way painters used and thought about colour. And, you know, I think we take it for granted now that we sort of imagine painters have always had colour and they just do different things with it. But actually, there were periods in, in history when colours became available for the first time. Right. And uh, so new possibilities arose. And that's really what I uh, look at in my book. Um, and it's... a again this idea of finding a window on something that otherwise is too huge it's a way of talking about the history of art quite generally right. through the window of its materials in this case yeah okay and uh, was that was that book uh, the one related to oswald's work as well or was that that was a sort of paper much earlier as well wasn't it well, in terms of his uh, because i guess what he was doing was he was he was trying to blend the whole art and technology together and, and he had some some interesting ideas about colour and how they correlated to shapes and things, is that right? Well, Wilhelm Oswald was, um, uh, Ostwald was, was uh, a, um, a Nobel laureate chemist, one of the first actually in the early part of the 20th century um, and he's often regarded as the father of physical chemistry so he was hugely important and influential um, within chemistry but he was also an amateur painter and he had a strong interest in colour and he had his own particular theory of colour um, mm. that was to do with sort of measuring it and you know d devising scales for for to, to, to measure and quantify colour. So it was a very, it was kind of almost um, stereotypically the scientist's approach to to colour. And Ostwald, um, you know, went even further in that regard in criticising great painters like Titian <laughs> for using the wrong shade of blue, yeah. as though there was a right and a wrong to this, as though there was a scientific answer to how colour should be used. And I always find it interesting that uh, that although his ideas were followed and with, with some interest by painters at the Bauhaus in Germany um, in the 1920s, Probably one of the greatest colorists of uh, among the modernist painters, Paul Clay, right. really had no time for Ostwald's ideas. He 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 said, you know, if this is what science has to offer, uh, we painters, <laughs> then no thanks. That's right. Yeah, no, and thank you. It, clearly he didn't need it, you yeah. know, because Clay is 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 a master at color without any of this theory. So it was a kind of a, a, a nice example of how sometimes when science tries to move into art, there's this 
nasty collision <laughs> with what right. artists actually want. That's right, yeah. And uh, you yourself, I mean, I, I myself, have, I feel I have a really strong relationship with colour and I used to do a lot of landscape gardening and other things and so I've always had... Um, I guess what I believe is a high sensitivity to colours and how they go and react within the landscape. And of course, you put this huge painting of acres of garden and, and you're working on that huge scale and all sorts of seasons and things. And I've always really enjoyed the relationship of all those colours in the landscape and being able to create like that. And do you, do you feel that in actual fact, in some way, uh, over time, your relationship with certain colours have, have changed? Do you feel that in your, in your life that there's certain colours now that make more sense to you or have meaning for you now? Or no, not really, that's not really... Um, I, I, I think I have a less intense relationship with colour than my wife, who's a painter, right, and sure. who uh, makes me realise that they're, you know, she's an example of people who have an incredibly strong sense of colour, colours that work and colours that don't, and the ability to combine colours, to combine strong colours actually, mm. which is a very difficult thing to do. Mm. Um, uh, so, you know, in some ways, um, I, 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 I'm not someone who has this incredibly you know, strong, intense response to colours, but what was very interesting to me when I gave this talk at Edinburgh um, about colour, another person who was presenting in the same session um, was uh, a, a synesthete, they, someone who had the condition of synesthesia, where they have very strong responses to uh, to certain sensory stimuli like you know what you see or what you hear that are confused with others so for a, a common one is that uh, people who have synesthesia experience strong color sensations when they hear musical sounds particular musical sounds or particular keys um, or often it's particular words and um, this uh, the, 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 this presenter she showed her the colors of her days of the week and right. I thought, yeah, that's right. Five out of seven of those were exactly the ones that I had, which is actually quite uncommon uh, with amongst synesthetes. You know, they have strong responses to colour, but they don't agree with each other. Um, but it made me realise that actually, you know, maybe I do. I mean, it's it's not such an uncommon condition to some degree, and I made me wonder whether perhaps I have a degree of synesthesia. Tuesday is 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 light blue. Um, you know, Wednesday is kind of ochre, Thursday is purple, and that's very clear to me. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. All right, well, look, uh, we're going to uh, wrap up now, but I just had, had one, uh, I guess, last question uh, for you. I, I suppose you, uh, I, I think you've got 20 books now, is that right, more or less? It depends how you count them, but that's it's right. around. Yeah, yes. okay, good. And so um, I guess uh, in terms of the way you look at how you're, style of writing has evolved over over the years throughout those different books all on very different subjects uh, one of the things that i took away i noticed that the the title of this book which is uh, what is it again the dangerous well in it, it, it the title is invisible the subtitle is the dangerous allure of the unseen that's right and so when we look at that title for that book and that subject and we look at the very first title of your first of your first book which was a a very chemistry-based book. Mm -hmm. How would you explain your evolution as, as a writer as you've moved wildly from these 
very different subjects and very passionately involved in each one of them. How would you describe that process? I, 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 well, I suppose one thing I feel has happened is that I've become more interested in exploring the social context of science right. than in simply explaining the science itself. I mean, it's a fantastic thing to do, and there are pe- plenty of people who do it wonderfully to simply you know, tell, well, it's not simple, but to very you know, nicely tell us what, uh, what science is about, what it's doing now, right. explaining yeah. what it's up to. Yeah. Um, but for me, I, I, I guess what, what interests me is what happens to science when it enters the broader culture, how it interacts with that in one way or another. And, you know, colour was one aspect of that. Music, the cognition of music was another. And this book on invisibility is another. So I think that's one thing that's that sort of happened to me. But I guess in terms of it, it, it clearly does look, and I, I can't deny that it, there is a hopping from you know, one <laughs> subject right. to something that seems completely unrelated. Yeah. Um, but I suppose, although that's not entirely conscious, it's certainly conscious to the extent that I feel that I'm very lucky to be able to spend two years or so right. just delving into a subject that yeah. interests me. And I might as well take advantage of that situation to learn stuff yeah. rather than continuing to plough a furrow in chemistry or yeah. whatever it is that I feel comfortable in. I'd much rather be moving into an area where I don't feel comfortable, where I'm going to have to learn an awful lot right. if I'm not going to make a complete fool of myself. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's really what I'm looking for with the books now. Brilliant. All right. Well, look, thank you very much for your time and uh, really enjoyed that you've taken the time out for us uh, tonight. And then tomorrow night, of course, you're presenting here in Melbourne. And so we look forward to uh, hearing you there. And thank you very, very much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much, Colin. Cheers. Thanks for joining us and Philip Ball. And you can get more details on Philip's work at philipball.co.uk. And we've got links to uh, some of Philip's other work, including his book, of course. And you can get that on the show notes at eatmag.com. And we've got some very interesting podcasts coming up with some very passionate people across a wide variety of areas. And we look forward to you joining us then.